All right, good morning, everybody. You know, if there's such a thing as the spiritual gift of announcement making, I think Grant, Grant Gaiman has been blessed with that gift. Very few churches I've been in where I've looked forward to hearing the announcements, but Grant, that was a, that was a great job. So we are in a five-week study here on preparing for your new pastor. Last week, we talked about everybody playing their position, both people and pastor. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about shepherds and cowboys out of 1 Peter 5. Ought to be a fun study. And then the following two weeks, I hope you're looking forward to this one, how to have a good fight as a congregation. And we are going to emphasize the word good, not the word fight. And I think, uh, I think you'll, you'll enjoy this. Uh, it's something that uh, we've shared with lots of different churches, and, and I think you'll find it very helpful in your church as well. Today, we're going to talk about the elusive super pastor, the legend of super pastor. Kind of goes like this, once upon a time in a land far, far away. No, not really. The search for the elusive, perfect pastor. Here's the profile of the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but he never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight. He's also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week. He wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. He's 29 years old and has 40 years' worth of experience. Above all, he is handsome. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his congregation. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office when needed. He never misses the meeting of any church organization, and he's always busy evangelizing the unchurched. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors, and one of them should be perfect. <laughs> okay, well... We laugh about that. Uh, but the truth is that believing this, this legend, this myth, that someone exists as super pastor or the perfect pastor, it's likely one of the contributing factors to pastoral burnout and ultimate failure. And if congregations don't know how to be part of the solution, then they may contribute to the worsening of the problem. So what I'd like to do this morning in these, these few moments together before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together is to think about the problem of searching for the super pastor and then come to the Scripture to talk about what I believe is a very clear solution and it's going to help a whole lot more things than just the pastoral side of things. The problem lies in the, the existence of unhelpful assumptions and unhealthy expectations. Let me tell you what I mean. By unhelpful assumptions. So you have a young man who is 
active and growing and gifted, and his gifts are being recognized in a local body of believers like Bethany Grace Fellowship. And the uh, spiritual leaders in the church begin to talk to this young person, or maybe a person in middle years. It doesn't age, really not an issue. And that we're seeing these gifts for ministry in your life. He, he is listening carefully to this. He's beginning to invest his gifts in ministry, and people are being helped. Believers are being encouraged, and his gifts are being affirmed. Now, the unhelpful assumptions uh, that people make might be something along this line that they're seeing giftedness in the person's life, and they begin to assume that everything must be well in his spiritual life. There there must not be any, uh, you know, sinful struggle in his life, any heart issue or uh, issue of a a remaining sin that he's battling. And so um, this is never talked about. It's, it's the kind of a church where people often ask the how you doing question, and the answer is often fine, how are you, fine, and we never get past that surface to really know one another, and such is the case with this person. And so the church, in their encouragement of his life toward ministry, they send him off to seminary. And at seminary, this future super pastor Uh, He takes himself with him to seminary. You know, you can't leave yourself behind. So you take yourself with you, including your gifts and your spiritual struggles. Now, by by this point, you've been recognized by a local church as having these gifts. And so there's there's already a lot on the table that you might lose, you know, reputation and people affirming you. If you were honest about, I'm limping along in my life with a spiritual struggle, not everything's bad, but I have this one area that I'm wrestling with and I'm not finding help, off you go to seminary. And in this seminary, you're being taught, uh, understand what I'm about to say, is no condemnation of all seminaries, okay? I mean, seminaries for a reason have been dubbed cemeteries in some, in some places. Uh, I've been the president of a seminary. I currently lead the Bible and theology uh, department of a seminary, Capital Seminary and Graduate School. So I like seminary. I believe in it. It's a good place to train. However, in some, in some instances, and this is too common to not be recognized as a pattern, the people teaching in seminaries are not, as they once were, active pastors in the local church, week in, week out, preaching, teaching, rubbing shoulders with real people. Instead, they've become specialists in a discipline, and they're kind of in an ivory tower, and they're all about their particular discipline, and they're not thinking of themselves as the functioning pastor, really, of these students in training, super pastors in training, so that they're not just imparting facts to them, but they're also caring for their souls. Too often that happens. And so this young person goes through the educational process, probably working a job that takes him out of really strong involvement in a local church. And his, uh, his interaction with the Bible is mainly through his assignments. Um, he may be absent from his family because of the demanding education and work schedule that he has. And so he's, he's still limping along 
with that spiritual problem, and now there's too much at stake to be open about this. In some seminaries, you might even be asked to step aside if you admitted you had a spiritual problem that you were struggling with. Well, but something else that's happening along this, along this path is he's learning how to read the Bible in Hebrew and how to read the Bible in Greek, and there's, there's something in his heart that begins to say, I know I have this problem, but, but I'm okay, I'm okay. And by the time he graduates, having met all the marks, made all the grades, and now being approved for graduation and recommendation to ministry in whatever denomination, this guy leaves in his own heart believing he may be bulletproof, you know, that he can leap tall buildings in a single bound. And the Bible has become to him an academic volume that he studies and parses and exegetes and thinks about applying to the lives of other people, but in his own life, and particularly in this one area of struggle, he's still wrestling. But there's, there's too much at stake now to be honest about this, right? And so the seminary graduates him and sends super pastor off to a, a local church. And this local church, there uh, are some unhelpful assumptions being made like this. The guy got recommended by the local church who knew him best. He went to a seminary and graduated. He must be a holy person. You know, he knows that, I mean, come on, he can read the Bible in Greek, and he knows a little Hebrew as well, right? So these assumptions begin to be made, and those lead to unhealthy expectations. I'm going to read a little quote here for you from a volume entitled Dangerous Calling. It's a book that Paul David Tripp wrote about pastoral ministry, and uh, it's aptly titled, It's a Dangerous Calling. Now, what's he talking about? Listen to this description of what often happens when the super pastor takes his first church. Well, it should be obvious that the unhelpful assumptions made as the pastor is coming to lead the church would be fruit in a whole set of unrealistic expectations. The biggest is that many churches simply don't expect their pastor to struggle with sin. But he is not sin-free. Since he is still being sanctified, sin still remains and is being progressively eradicated. They don't expect him to get discouraged in the middle of the war for the gospel. They don't expect him to be tempted toward bitterness or envy. They expect him to be a model husband and father. They don't expect him to be lazy or to settle for mediocrity. They don't expect that in moments of self-protection, he will be tempted to be antisocial and controlling. They expect that he will be able to joyfully carry an unrealistic job description that would overwhelm anyone this side of Jesus' return. I love that cartoon of a pastor's tombstone, and on the tombstone it said, I told you the job description was unreasonable, right? They expect that he will be content with significantly less pay than most people with his level of education. They expect that his wife is so fully committed to ministry herself that his coming to the church is actually a two-for-one deal, (laughs) They don't expect that there will be moments when he is tempted to doubt the goodness of God. They don't expect that in a meeting or in the pulpit, fear of man will keep him from doing or saying the things that God calls him to do and say. And think of this, 
They don't expect to hire a flawed man who is still desperately in need of the very grace that he is called to offer and exegete for others. You know, as I read through the qualifications in 1 Timothy and Titus, for those who would desire and pursue the office of elder, overseer, uh, one thing stands out to me. And by the way, this is what I like about the elders in your congregation, guys, so I'm going to puff you up here just a little bit. These guys in Titus and 1 Timothy, they were not bulletproof guys. They were not super, you know, human beings. They were just ordinary guys. They're just ordinary guys. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else, right? And they struggle with the same things that other believers struggle with because of remaining sin. Now, I know there's a, there's a level of uh, acceptable, like you have to have grown spiritually at least to this level, which is what the qualifications there in Titus and Timothy are about. But let us never forget, they're just ordinary guys, And that reality of what happens in some local churches and in some seminaries where people are not really nurturing the spiritual walk of these future pastors, but instead are loading them up with academic, and and nothing wrong with that. It's all helpful and good. This person needs to know the Scripture and know how to battle false doctrine, etc. That's very, very important. But if it becomes all academic and not a heart relationship with the Lord, you know, where this person is being transformed from the inside out in progressively complete ways, right? Nobody's perfect, but we're all growing. That assumption that somehow a pastor doesn't live on that level with the rest of us, it's a very dangerous assumption. And it's a problem that uh, has led to as you can imagine, some spectacular failure, burnout, doesn't have to be a, you know, catastrophic uh, moral failure. It it could just be uh, this man becomes so unhealthy in terms of his leadership model, the way he's managing anger in his life, becoming a controlling person, etc., becomes so unhealthy that the relationship with him and the local church he's leading begins to to go sideways. And then what often happens as we continue thinking about this problem is when people start to notice in their leader, this guy has not got a cape. I mean, he has some problems. I've seen him speak, you know, unhelpfully to his wife or children. Uh, I've seen a flash of anger here and there. I've felt like he was trying to manipulate the text he was preaching to push some item on his agenda that he wants us to vote for at the important business meeting coming up, you know, Grant. Yeah, uh, and people start to see this, and here's what typically happens, because as members of a congregation, we've got this view of the pastor that he's up here and he doesn't struggle, and so when we see that happening, often, instead of talking to the pastor about something we see in his life, we talk to people about the pastor, right? And so he's, he's cut out of this beneficial, horizontal kind of member-to-member, person-to-person, exhort, exhorting one another 
helpful kind of interaction, and that's going to have predictable results and outcomes. Well, how do we turn this around, and how do we keep Bethany Grace Fellowship from becoming a place where both people and pastors wind up with great disappointment in the relationship. Well, that's where we come to the solution. And let's open our Bibles now to Hebrews 3. You were wondering, is Sam going to even open the Bible today? Well, he's, yeah, for the last few minutes, here we are. But no, no fear, it's only three verses. Hebrews 3, uh, verses 12 to 14. And what we're going to read about here, and I want to commend to you to think about here this morning is the kind of authentic, and I know that word's overused, but like real, real gospel community. Community where everybody that's part of this thing, the central thing they're thinking about, celebrating, rejoicing over when we come together for worship, talking to each other about through the week is exactly what we did in worship this morning. Think about what God has done for us in Christ How he has saved us from the penalty of our sin is saving us from the power of our sin, and ultimately, someday, we look forward to being delivered from the very presence of sin in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a gospel community, and every single person in this community needs to be focused on that priority. So let's read verses 12 to 14 here. Be careful then, the writer says, dear brothers and sisters, and remember these are Jewish brothers and sisters, first generation believers who are now being pressured to leave Christ and go back into Judaism through some intense persecution. Listen to what he says, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, quote-unquote, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Now, the writer in this context is using the people of Israel and their wilderness wanderings and that one point where they have the opportunity to believe the report of the two faithful spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, or listen to the fear and unbelief of the ten spies who said, we can't go into this land God has promised, the obstacles are too great. And because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, they are not permitted, at least that generation not, to go into the land God had promised them. And so, the writer is saying, just like them, we are all also in danger, not of losing our salvation, but of failing to to experience all that God has for us in our relationship with Christ. Now, what I want to do here, just real quickly, is surface three principles that come swimming to the surface in this text as we read it. Here's the first principle. Human hearts are prone to wonder. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed your own heart is prone to wonder? Uh, have you noticed that sometimes you don't feel like reading your Bible when you know you should? That, that sometimes when you have a choice before you, good, evil, evil's just calling. And 
and you love Jesus, and you love the Word of God, and yet evil is calling, and sometimes you go that direction. Well, the, the writer here talks about the location of that problem. He says there in verse 12, it's, it's a problem not on the outside, it's a problem internally in our hearts. So he says, be careful, be watching. The idea of just continually on the watch for something in my heart that wants something so much that I would even be willing to disobey God in order to have it. That we would call an idol of our heart. Something that's become so important to me, I would even disobey God and His clearly revealed will, the commands of His Word, to get that thing, right? John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're constantly manufacturing other gods to go after instead of the God who created us and has revealed Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so here the writer is talking to people like us, believers who've already committed our life to Christ, already accepted what He has done for us on the cross. And he's saying, now be careful because your heart can be going off in the wrong direction. Your wanter can lead you in the wrong direction. James talks about the desires that we have that respond to temptations in the world around us. It's not just the world around us that's the problem. It's a heart that still desires to find what we want some other way than the way God tells us to in our relationship with Him. It's true for all of us. It's true for your next pastor. I don't care what seminary he went to. The next pastor is a human with a heart that is prone to wonder. Here's the second principle. Human hearts can be deceived and hardened by believing sin's lies. He says there, uh, you can be deceived by sin and hardened against God. I grew up in a family where um, we all play stringed instruments. My mother is the only trained musician. I just, by the way, I just marvel at the giftedness that your congregation is blessed with uh, every Sunday when we're here. Uh, all these people playing these stringed instruments. Um, one thing I learned pretty quickly when I first started learning to play guitar, and that is it hurts your fingers. It hurts bad. It might be a, a, a commentary on the cheap guitar I was learning to play on, like everybody starts on, but you, you get, you get, you know, your fingers get sore to even pick it up and start to play again. But after a while, you start to develop calluses, right? And even right now, the tips of all my fingers here are so calloused, I, I can't really feel anything right on the tip, right? So I guess I'm all set for diabetes when I have to prick my fingers. It's not even going to hurt, right? So, but, but think about that in relationship to our heart, that each time we listen to what sin says, you can have it all. I know you have to disobey God, but this is a shortcut. You can have everything God wants you to have, the joy, the pleasure, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, everything your heart is longing for, just come over here. And every time we listen to sin and are deceived by sin and choose to follow it, it like lays another layer of callous down over our heart so that our hearts can get to the place where 
we hear a convicting message, we hear a song that, that is, is pointing us to look at our own lives, and it's like it can't get through, right? can't get through because my conscience is seared, my heart is no longer responding. It's a danger that all of us face, and super pastors face that very same danger. Okay, so we all have human hearts. They want to go in the wrong direction so often, and we can be deceived. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful, right? So what do we do about this? And the text we read is very, very clear. Look at it there in verse 13a. He says, um, you must warn each other every day while it is still today. It's interesting, right? While it is still today, like what? Today is today is today, right? What do you mean while it's still today? Well, it's, it's the idea that as long as there's life and breath, there's still, you still have time, you still have opportunity to repent and to change, right? And to stop going the wrong direction and to choose to go in the right direction. And so he is saying to all of us as a community, this is what gospel community works like, um, we are to keep a watch on our own hearts and to love and care for one another so that um, while we have opportunity, before it's too late, before a life is ruined, before someone walks away, as some very high-profile Christian leaders have done in the last few weeks, and, and says, I'm unfollowing, you know, I, I don't follow Christ anymore. I, it was all a lie. It wasn't true, which I think is a pretty good indicator it never was true in their life. The writer is saying, while it's still today, while we have opportunity, before it's too late, here's what we are to do. You should warn each other every day. It's a present tense command. This is an ongoing relationship that we all maintain with one another. And the word here, warn, it's got this, it's a beautiful picture of two words, to be, the, the word to be called, and secondly, to come alongside, okay? So this is not the finger in the face saying, you're wrong, I'm right, I can't believe you're letting that sin be in your life. This is the, the attitude of coming alongside another person, putting your arm around them as it's appropriate, and saying, I struggle with sin just like you do, and here's the, here's the key. I'm seeing something in your life that is concerning me. Can we talk about that? All right? This is not, I'm without sin, I am visiting from heaven, and I'm here to help you with your sinful struggles. No. This is, I sin and struggle just like you do. And I want you to know I love you, and I love you enough to climb over the fear that you would reject me and be angry at me because I'm bringing this up. I am, I am here to, to say, we've got to deal with this. You know, don't be deceived by sin. Now, I know what I'm describing here. It's really uncomfortable, right? Like, who, who are any of us to point out the sin and failure of another person? You know, the old adage, one finger pointing away, there's three pointing right back at you, saying, <laughs> we have sins as well. There'll, there'll never be a time in any of our lives 
when we can say, I don't have any struggles, so now I am free to talk to someone else about theirs. No, we all always continually have struggles, and yet we're called into this kind of community where we're actually talking to one another, you know, confessing our own faults and failures and seeking forgiveness, but confronting, lovingly confronting one another. Now, here's where it gets really tricky, guys. Your pastor is a human with a heart that can be deceived by sin. If he's the right kind of person, he's growing in Christ, right? There's character that Christ is building into his life. But you might have a time in the future when you start to see something in your pastor's life that is concerning. And instead of saying, you know, I heard a rumor, just to make sure it's it's true, I'm just going to ask around, (laughs) you know, (laughs) make sure it's not true thereby spreading the rumor, right? That's not the right way to go at it. But instead, in a, in a humble spirit, in a spirit of love, to come alongside, and the old principle, if you see something, say something, right? What I'm describing is a community where pastor and people together are growing in the gospel and exhorting one another. So here's the Here's the life lesson. We're going to be done here in just a moment. Super pastors, by the way, there's no such thing, right? That's why the quotes are there. Super pastors and their families, they need the ministry of authentic gospel community like any other believer. So can I just suggest to you a few ideas for what this might look like? Here's here's a really good one. Invite your pastor into your home. Instead of waiting on him, during his 15 house calls every day to show up at your house, invite him to come to your house. And for the purpose of getting to know him and his family, right? Uh, To really get to know a person and to to get to know him to the level that uh, he might even talk to you about some of the struggles that he faces in life. Here's another one. If, if you have small group ministry, right, and this one comes right out of Dave, uh, Paul David Tripp's book, encourage a pastor to be part of a small group that they don't lead. You see the dynamic there, the, the, meth, the madness behind that method? If I'm the person leading the small group, often I kind of, you know, exempt myself from I'm, I'm facilitating and helping others. It would be really good if pastor and his wife could be part of a small group. They're not charged with leading. They're just there to be encouraged and edified and to grow along with everybody else. Here's a dangerous one. I don't know if this is like, uh, you know, a, a bad thing here. So if it is, I'm a visitor. I'll just step all over your toes, and then you can, we can work on it later, okay? Permit the pastor to have close friends in the congregation. I'm not seeing too much terror out there when I say this, but uh, when I came out of seminary, one thing we were taught was don't have close friends in your congregation because people might see you playing favorites. People might, uh, you know, it, you're, you're going to tend to uh, spend more of your time with them and neglect others. I, I, I do understand there needs to be a balance there. And yet on the other side, let me just appeal to you to say, He's an ordinary guy, just like all of us. And who doesn't need the blessing of friendship 
someone you can confide in, someone, someone who can encourage you, someone you can say, I'm having a bad day and I feel like quitting, and they won't you know, just assume that uh, you're a total loser and you need to leave and resign. No. We all need those kinds of relationships, so just consider that. Here's the last one. See, if you see something, say something. Now, in my experience, in my pastoral ministry, I have found uh, some church members actually have this spiritual gift of being concerned for the pastor's growth and being quite willing to come and share and point things out where, where the person needs to grow and change, all right? So there's a ditch on both sides of this street, okay? We can just get to where we sort of relish pointing out failures and faults. But this is a this is a description of a healthy dynamic, a healthy rhythm in a congregation where we're all so interconnected in our lives and relationships that it's not just the, the polite connecting at a surface level at church, but that we're actually beginning to do life together in some very real ways to the point that we can talk to one another about our struggles and always point each other back to the hope that we have in the gospel and in Christ. And all I'm saying is there's no such thing as a super pastor, so the pastor we have needs to be included in this beautiful community of the gospel where we encourage and are encouraged to forsake sin and to keep following Christ. We are in just a moment going to celebrate that gospel of what Christ has done for us through His death, burial, and resurrection through the Lord's table. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us hope through the gospel. Thank You for calling ordinary people, ordinary men and women, to rise to positions of leadership, to serve you and to serve your people, and to be served by the people they lead. And so we do pray, Father, for uh, this fellowship. We thank you for our brothers and sisters here. Thank you for the very clear evidence of your Spirit working among this congregation. And so we pray as we enter the next season in the story of Bethany Grace that, uh, that you would, above all else, may this congregation be focused on the gospel and focused on helping one another, pastor and people alike, to grow together in the strength of the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.